what I love about your stuff, and I think it's an it's a testament to the the actual quality of the message, is that it there is a workmanlike quality to it. I don't mean that in a condescending way. It just seems like you said what you wanted to say, and that's the most important thing. Yeah, there's no A B testing on which title I'm going to run. It's like this is the title, right? No, I, I. So I imagine that decisiveness has served you well, but but I. Obviously, you had your you had your first career. Was it weird for you, or hard, or, or I'm I'm curious about that transition as you as you go from Navy SEAL uh, commander, the the armed forces world, to entrepreneurship, to writing. Those are other careers that require their own kind of mastery, have their own kind of logic, and a lot of people get their ass kicked transitioning from one one career to the other. H- how did you think about sort of starting? a new thing essentially from scratch. I just kind of applied the same principles that I applied in the military. You know, I try to keep things simple. I try to help people out. So cover and move, you know, I, I basically did the things that are, that are in my books and, and, and I'd say from like the transition, I, I always tell veterans and I guess you could say this to anyone that's leaving one life and entering another one is you got to find a new mission. And it's very obvious in the military, when you're in the military, you have a mission, you're surrounded by people that have the same mission. It's an honorable mission that you're trying to accomplish. So when you leave the military, all of a sudden, you don't have that mission anymore. And if you don't find a new mission, well, then you're wandering around and you'll take the path of least resistance. So I found a new mission, which was teaching people about leadership. And then that just kind of, once I, once I had that going, you know, it's another thing that you do in the military. When you're in the military, when you assess an enemy, you are looking for, well, what you're looking for is weakness that the enemy has. And then you apply some pressure to that weakness. And if you can, if you can break through, then you, then you exploit that and you put more troops in that area. In the civilian sector, I've found the same thing. I'm not, I'm not looking for weakness, but I'm looking for opportunities. And when there's opportunities, then I'll put more resources against those opportunities. And as long as it continues to go in the right, good direction, I'll continue to do, do that thing. If I, but I mean, you know, you've got to send out probes to see if something works, see if something doesn't work. And I, I, I'm interested in a lot of different things. So when I see something, I, I try it. If I start getting some good feedback, I'll go a little bit further. Yeah, and I, I've got to imagine the, the mission and then also that idea of, of finding, of applying your strengths to the weakness of the enemy or the, the market or whatever it is, is really important because what a lot of people do, I find when you transition from something, you go, hey, I'm really good at this. Therefore, I'm going to be great at whatever I do next. You, like there's a humility in going like, hey, I've got to figure out where I fit in here, where the best use of my time and energy, as opposed to just assuming that, that mastery automatically translates from one domain to the other. You got to yeah. And I'll take that one step further. It's one thing to say, hey, I'm really good at this thing and therefore the world should conform to, to support the thing that I'm good at. Like, it doesn't work that way. You could be good at something and the world doesn't need it and I'm sorry. You know, I've, I've said that to uh, friends that I've had that are really good at Brazilian jiu-jitsu. If they were that good at basketball, they'd be, you know, making $20 million a year. They happen to be that good at jiu-jitsu, they don't make any money from it. Right. Like, the world doesn't conform to you, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. It's like, hey, look, you're a classical musician. You're not going to be as famous as the Rolling Stones. That's just how the tastes align. 
But I think also your point about weaknesses, that doesn't mean you can't be, there's not extraordinary opportunities to be successful as a classical musician. You just have to be willing to find those and, and work at them. And I think that's the other thing Yeah, people will, hey, I should be a successful writer. You put out a book, it doesn't sell any copies. And then you're like, oh, this, it, it's impossible. It's like, no, just you tried the wrong avenue the first time and there's 50 other avenues left to explore. It's a scary thing when, when you think you have the best idea ever and then you realize that maybe it wasn't the best idea ever. Right. And it's hard to admit that to yourself. And it's hard not to blame the world for not understanding your idea and not appreciating your brilliance. And sometimes that's the way it works out. So, so speaking of transitions and then the world maybe not appreciating, I'd be curious, so obviously I love your, your good video. What would you say to someone who's, who's had their ass kicked the last four or five months? Maybe the, their industry went sideways, they lost their job, maybe they saw their stock market portfolio go sideways. Like, what would you say to someone who's sort of reeling from the, the events of uh, the pandemic? Yeah, so from, you know, I, I have a consulting business, I work with a bunch of businesses, and the clients that accepted the reality that was upon us the fastest they made the quickest changes and adapted. The people that decided that, well, this isn't going to last or this isn't a big deal or we're, we're going to just keep doing what we're doing because it's always worked, those people are going to have problems. And, and really just comes down to having humility because if you're humble enough to say, you know what, I'm not perfect. I don't know everything. I'm not sure how long this is going to last. Then, then you start to make adjustments. If you if you let your ego get out and you start saying, well, you know, I've been through this kind of thing before. And, you know, I remember the whatever virus and it's not that big of a deal and everything will be fine. And look, we could find news sources that actually support any possible opinion that you right. possibly have. You can verify it. And that doesn't mean it is true. So, you know, I, I think it's come down to if people have been getting their ass kicked over the last four or five months. Well, guess what? It's, it's time to adjust your plan and, and attack from a different direction. Yeah, one of my favorite Marcus Aurelius quotes, and I think it ties into to, to your message, and he, it's weird to think he was writing during the Antonine Plague, a plague that lasts for 15 years, and ultimately it, uh, he, he ends up succumbing to it at the end of his reign. But you know, he writes, uh, he's like, uh, no, it's uh, unfortunate that this happened. And then he says, no, 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 wait, it's fortunate that it happened to me because not everyone would have basically what I have. And he talks about sort of that, that strength is the ability to look at whatever happens and say, sort of, this is exactly what I was looking for. So like, how do you tell companies to go like, look, yeah, I know you just had to close 50% of your locations, or you've had to lay this amount of staff off, or, you know, you're not going to be doing live events for the next uh, year and a half. H how do they find in that what they're looking for? Um, I've had this very conversation with a, with a bunch of different clients and that is, well, you know, folks, here's what we can do. We can curl up in a ball and get under the covers on, in, on the couch and hide, or we can go on the attack. So what do you want to do? Do you want to go on the attack or do you want to curl up in a ball and let the world fall apart around you? I say we go on the attack and, and that's pretty much, pretty much what everyone realizes they have to do. You have to say, okay, this is the new reality. This is what I'm dealing with. And this is how we're going to go forward. You know, I, I, on my podcast, you know, I've been very lucky to have some, some pretty incredible people on there and, and, and also cover some pretty incredible subjects. And I, 
I, I did a series of podcasts about there's a guy named Chesty Puller who's kind of the biggest hero in the Marine Corps. Five Navy crosses, just the wor- the the probably the most iconic of all Marines. Sure. And his son was in the Marine Corps too, and his son wasn't quite the same kind of hardy stock that yeah. Chesty Puller was. Lewis Puller was more of a cerebral guy. He had glasses. He just he just wasn't this sort of Marine's Marine, which is what his father was. But you know, he joined the Marine Corps, and then he went to Vietnam, 1968. And he ended up getting severely wounded. Um, it's a tra- totally tragic story. He ended up killing himself after he wrote an incredible book, which is called Fortunate Son. And it seemed like everything was going in the right direction. The book came out, Pulitzer Prize winner. Well, I, I, had, a, I had another guy on my podcast who was also wounded in Vietnam. Uh, he lost both of his legs and one of his arms. His name is Jim Searlesley. Just an incredible guy. And, and to hear him tell the story, you're waiting for sort of the tragic tone in his voice to come out, and it doesn't come out. And then he gets home from Vietnam, and now you're thinking, you know, here's going to come the tragic tone in his voice, and it doesn't come. And instead, he's saying, you know, so I had to spend nine months in rehab just to learn how to work my wheelchair. And then, and then I got out of there. I went to college. When I went to college, I started a, a little roofing company. And you're, he's just saying this like it's no big deal. Started a roofing company, started getting into real estate, got married. And so he carried on with his life and, and just, just led this incredible life, an incredible life. And the, the reason I'm telling you all this is because when we got done with the podcast and, and we were just sitting around and talking and he, he asked me, he goes, do you know who Lewis Puller is? And I go, yes, sir, I do. I, I, I did a podcast on, on him. And he goes, I was in rehab with him. We were in the same facility learning how to live without legs. And he goes, and I had to also learn to live without one arm. And, and Lewis Puller had some bad damage to his hands. So we were both kind of in the same boat. And he said, you know what happened to him, right? And I said, yes, sir, I do. And he said, you know, he never fully accepted what happened to him. He said, I think he was at 99%. He said, when I got home, I 100% accepted that this is what had happened and I'm going to move forward. So I think that ties into what we're talking about. You know, things unfold in life. And if you want to sit there and, you know, shake your fist at the, at the sky and, you, you, you know, I understand that. And, you know, I've done that. And I know we all do that. But if that's what you continue to do, you're not going to be able to move forward. Yeah, I mean, and speaking of in, in, incredible soldiers, uh, I was just writing about Admiral Stockdale this morning. And that's sort of what he talks about his book on being a philosophical fighter pilot. You know, he talks about the sort of radical acceptance of your situation on the one hand, and then on the other, the unshakable faith that you determine the end of your story. And that to me seems like the difference in the, the two lives that you were just talking about. Yeah, and, and I'll tell you this, you know, so, so this is another thing. So obviously my first book is called Extreme Ownership. And, you know, you take ownership of everything that's going on in your world. And that gives you the power to actually move it in the right direction. And then people start saying to me, and it actually wasn't the first time I'd heard this question before. Because, you know, people say, well, how do I take ownership of this disease? Well, I'd heard this question, you know, as soon as the book came out and I started interacting with people. And, and people would say, you know, my daughter has cancer. My, you know, my eight-year-old daughter has cancer. 
How am I supposed to take ownership of that? Or I have leukemia. How am I supposed to take ownership of that? And the fact of the matter is it's, it's the similar thing of Jim Sursley. You don't take ownership of the fact that that happened to your daughter. You take ownership of how you're going to respond to it. Right. How are you going to move forward? So that's a, a very powerful lesson. And, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what you're working on right now, but a, a, friend, a friend of mine named Charlie Plum spent six years in the Hanoi Hilton with Admiral Stockdale, and I'd be more than happy to put you in touch with him. Um, just an incredible guy and, and a, an epic stoic of his own. No, I would, I would absolutely love that. Uh, I had the privilege of, uh, of talking to Stockdale's son uh, a few weeks back. And you can see just how that lesson passes from person to person, from you know, uh, POW to POW, father to son. Obviously, you, you would have been exposed to Stockdale's example in the Navy. I, I'm just curious. And I know you've been asked that a little bit before, but what do you think about Stoicism? I mean, obviously, you're a big reader. It, do you, is, that, is that a philosophy you identify with, or what do you think about it? Yeah, so the crazy thing about me, Ryan, is uh, I enlisted in the Navy out of high school. I listened to Motorhead. You know, I was, uh, I was, I was into hardcore music as a kid. I listened to Black Iron Flag. Iron Man fan? Black Flag, The Bad Brains. I mean, I, I listened to really hard music. I had no, you know, you, you, you said, you know, obviously a reader. I didn't, I didn't read books. I wasn't into any of that. I didn't like school. I just wanted to go in the military. I wanted to be some kind of a commando. Even when I got in the military, the closest, I mean, what I would read was books about war, books about, and, and generally first person account about, uh, accounts about war. When I started realizing that there was other people that were thousands, that had come thousands of years before me that had figured out things like discipline equals freedom, which I thought, you know, Look, it's not like I thought I thought of this and no one else thought of it, but no one else put that into my head. I just was like, oh yeah, the more disciplined you are, the more freedom you have. Sure. Well, it's in Stoicism, it's in the Bible. I mean, people have said all kinds, that, that type of thing over and over again. So to say that I was well-schooled on this stuff and this is where I developed this and I'm a follower of it is, is just not true. I can't, I, can't, I can't make that claim. What I can tell you is this, and I, and I had this interesting conversation with, well, I think I had it with Tim Ferriss and I think I had it with, with Jordan Peterson as well, which is when you take some human being and you put them into tough situations and they're able to muddle their way through it. And, and then if you take it and it's a tough situation, it happens to be a military situation. And then you take that person and you put them in a leadership position in a military situation and they're going through hard times. You kind of have this framework written and it's not that big of a surprise that when you get the product of that, there's a lot of overlaps and similarities. So, you know, I, I've covered so much, so much war on my podcast and ancient philosophers of war. And all I'm doing is saying, oh yeah, here's the way this guy that was in China 2000 years ago said the same thing that I tried to say five years ago when I wrote this book or three years ago when I wrote this book or a year ago when I wrote this other book. So I feel like a poser if I say, well, yes, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an obvious you know, uh, a follower of the Stoics. I, I'd be a poser. And I would be... Um, a liar if I said that when I read Stoicism, I go, oh, yeah, well, obviously all this makes sense. No, it's, it's, uh, I relate to that. My, my, I think my introduction to history and poetry and some of these big sort of epic themes came from my love of, of, of Iron Maiden in high school. And you're like, oh, you know, like, 
like people who are cool are interested in this stuff too. And I think that's kind of the problem with philosophy. We think philosophy is this sort of abstract, you know, turtleneck university professor talking about big words. But really, the, the great philosophers, whether they're Zen Buddhist, uh, you know, samurai warriors, or whether they're Marcus Aurelius leading troops into battle, were sort of warriors, or at the very least, people struggling with real problems in the real world. No doubt about it. And I think when people struggle through real problems in the real world, and they act in an admirable way, I think generally that that's a pretty tight group, a pretty tight shock group that you're going to end up with. Because look, you can be, you can go through those hard times and be turned into a horrible person, right? Yeah. But if you, if you come out and you, you handle it in an honorable way, then that tightens up the group pretty well. No, it's like vir virtue is virtue. And, and I think I, what the, I sort of liken it to evolution. It's like different animals like pandas and apes both have opposable thumbs. Birds and bats can both fly. They don't really share common ancestors. It's just like it was important to have those things. So they independently invented them. And I, I think it's like John McCain didn't study stoicism. Admiral Stockdale did. They both figure out the same way to behave in, in, the, in, the, in the Hilton. Exactly right. Yep, I like that that analogy of the bats and the birds. It's it's one hundred percent right. So you you mentioned uh, discipline and freedom. I, I, I that's one of my favorite books of yours. I love it. Uh, it reminds me of the, the the Metallica Black album. Was that a, was that a deliberate homage on the on the on the cover? Not a not a deliberate homage on the cover because I mean I'm one of those people that when that album came out you know I was going oh you can't believe it's too that. soft what kind of person what what is Metallica doing making songs that are only three minutes long <laughs> they've sold out so it wasn't homage to that it was but uh, definitely there's some I would say there's some old old hardcore music roots in the cover of that then yeah uh, so I I was curious so obviously the the sort of Spartan lifestyle it lends itself well to the warrior lifestyle and that. You know, you're posted at some far-flung posting, you're traveling, you're moving around. As you've gone and become more successful now that you are, you know, you have autonomy over your life, you know, financially, you know, and as far as what you work on, what you don't work on, how has that been challenged? How, uh, I, you know, I love the, the Eisenhower quote, which I think you were su subconsciously or independently discovering. He says, Freedom is better defined as the opportunity for self-discipline. How have you wrestled with that? It's not really that. It's not really a big deal. I really am doing the same things right now that I've, that I've always done. You know, I, I just, I've always done kind of the same things. In fact, kind of wear the same clothes that I've always worn. I'm just sort of, I, I'm pretty boring. I'm pretty boring and I just do what I do. So there's been no, you know, major challenges in that arena as far as, you know, succumbing to some sort of, uh, you know, there's no, I'm not, I'm not going to any clubs and uh, getting bottle service with a bunch of, you know, 20 year olds. It's not, it's not happening. I'm a grown man and sure. I'm, just, I'm just not, not doing that kind of stuff. No, I, but I guess what I mean is that th there are more temptations and I don't necessarily mean temptations of the flesh. It's just, you know, th there's the temptation, for instance, to be complacent after one has accomplished you know, things that other people would, you just in your career as a writer, you've accomplished what people have been working for 30 or 40 years have, have yet to even sniff. So how, I guess what I'm saying is how do you stay disciplined on top of it? I get being boring, but how, how do you stay tight when you don't have to? I guess I feel that I do have to. <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm really 
done anything that's all that great. So, and, and, and even more than that, I don't even think about that. You know, I, like I said earlier, when it comes to, you know, you mentioned writing, when it comes to writing, I've got a lot of other things in my head that want to come out. So I'm going to get them out. When it comes to the podcast, I've got podcasts that I want to do, books I want to do on there, people I want to view. So I'm going to do them. When it comes to consulting companies, I mean, it's, it's incredible gratification when you work with a company and they're able to align their leadership, get everyone on board and move forward and improve their profitability and grow their business. That's very gratifying. So I just kind of do what I'm doing. I don't really even, maybe I'm having a hard time with the question because I don't even really, I don't, I'm not really there. I don't feel like I'm there. I don't feel like I'm in some situation where I don't have anything else to do, I guess. No, I think I get it. It's like uh, the next mountain uh, is too attractive to you to celebrate being on top of the mountain that you just climbed. Like you're always looking at that. Like I've, one of the things, for instance, I think about with my books, I always have the next book that I'm working on before the, the one comes out. So that way I'm indifferent either way. If it, if it sells like crazy, cool, I'm busy. If, mm. if, it, you know, if people are upset about it or it's slow finding its audience, like who cares? I'm busy. I got a contract. You know, I, and in a way, routine does the same thing. It's like you wake up each day. These are the things you have to do. You're not regretting yesterday and you're not worried about tomorrow. Yeah. When, when I wrote Discipline Equals Freedom, I asked my, as we were going down the road, I asked my, my publisher, I said, Hey, is this the biggest risk you've taken with a book? And he's like, Oh my God, this is far away. This is, this, I've never done anything. No one's ever done anything like this. It was totally crazy. And, and I was just kind of, I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Maybe no one will buy it. And I, yeah. I don't know. I didn't really, I thought it was just going to be a cool book. And I thought it was going to get out certain part of what I think about to people if they wanted it. And I wasn't too concerned about it. But yeah, I mean, it, even before that one came out, I was writing the next one. So well, I imagine what you've been through turns down the stakes on uh, putting out a book a little bit. Yeah. And also, I guess, as you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, there's people that write, write books, and they went to college to write books, and they've gotten critique from people and they go to workshops and all this stuff. And I mean, I didn't, I look, I was an English major in college. I, I will say that. And I wrote a bunch and I read a bunch in college. I didn't make these incredible, you know, sacrifices of trying to write and being frustrated and trying to sell my manuscript and like all those things that a, a normal writer has to go through. I didn't have to go through any of it, which is, which is, I guess also takes it to like, I'm, I'm kind of just stoked. Hey, some people bought my books. Cool. I'm stoked on that. And the fact that they've done pretty well, I'm super stoked. So if I wrote a bomb tomorrow, then I'll, I'll smile and be like, Hey, luck ran out. No, and, I, that, and I'll still write more. I mean, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm not writing just so people buy books, you know, and, and an example of that is the discipline equals freedom field manual. You wouldn't write that book thinking, okay, this is what people are looking for. You wouldn't do that. That doesn't make it, you bring that book to any, whatever marketing expert and they would, they would be like, okay, no, let's take this in another, another direction. And one, in fact, one of the covers that they proposed to me was this metallic diamond plate cover, you know, that looked like it was a piece of metal. And they're like, this is so awesome. And I said, Hey, I, I will say it looks cool and everything, but no, like right. it's not cool. <laughs> No, I, th I think not having your identity tied up in the results allows you to, to sort of, I think, stay 
a bit truer to what you actually want to do. One, one last question for you, because I, I, and we were talking about this a little bit before we started, but I was telling you my, my son lo- loves your The Way of the Warrior Kid. He can recite a bunch of the different laws. A couple of weeks ago, I had on the, on the podcast, I, I had a professor who sort of focuses on teaching the classics to kids. And her point was these sort of myths, kind of like what Jordan Peterson talks about, these myths, these sort of big moral lessons are really, really important. But when I compare like the way the warrior kid to most kids books, the big distinction I I have is that, you know, you're not talking about, you know, silly, ridiculous things. You're trying, you're teaching very serious lessons, mostly that, hey, you're responsible for your own life. You know, these are your obligations as a human. Like what we were talking about, you don't control what happens, you control how you respond. Was that sort of a conscious effort having been through this with your kids that like, Hey, people aren't teaching these things and, and I got to do it. hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I'll tell you one of the coolest things that happened with that book is I, I, I got a letter from a guy and I forget all the details, but it was basically, Hey, listen, six months ago, I was overweight. I was drinking every night. I was in a, my dead end job. Wasn't getting anywhere. Just blah, blah, blah. And he said, I read your book. You know, I stopped drinking every day. I started eating cleaner. I started actually putting effort in at work. I got a promotion. I've lost 38 pounds. I feel great. Um, you know, he, his whole life turned around. And then he says, the book I read was Way of the Warrior Kid. And I, was, I, I said, you know, that's pretty awesome. And I've had many, many people say, hey, I know I'm getting more out of this than my kids are. And yeah, it was, it's absolute, absolutely a conscious effort. And each one of the books, as you know, as you read each one of the Warrior Kid books in the Warrior Kid series, they each have a, a specific theme or actually they have several specific life lessons that I'm trying to teach to kids. And yes, I went through that with my own kids. And many of the little stories in there are based on the real situations that I went through with my own kids. Yeah, I think it's, it's weird. Uh, <clears throat> people... I think people, and my kid's only four, so when I, when I told you we, we read the book, you said, oh, you should read this younger one. I think that's another interesting thing is like we so baby our kids when it comes to books. Meanwhile, you know, 1,500 years ago, our, our kids would have been able to recite the Odyssey and they would have read, you know, Xenophon and they would have read all these crazy, you know, stories about war and history and dragons and demons. And, and, and now we're like, here, let me, let me tell you this book about a kid making pizza, you know, like, and then we wonder why they don't pick up these important lessons and, and uh, don't aspire to great things. Yeah. Well, you, well, one thing I've said about kids is the more you help your kids, the more you're hurting your kids. And, and obviously I'm not talking about, you know, leaving them in danger, but if you do everything for your kids and you spoon feed them, they're never going to know how to fend for themselves. And that's not going to be a good thing. Jocko, you're the best. Uh, it was an honor to talk to you. I appreciate everything. Yeah, I appreciate it. Sorry we didn't get, I know we were close to doing this in person in San Diego and yeah. uh, I think I was gone. So next time we'll do it face to face. For sure. I'd love that. Right on, man.